My guest tonight is Ryan Dawson. He's the host of the ANC Report, Anti-Neocon Report, a web-based uh, media outlet focusing on uh, geopolitical, economic, and social issues. Ryan is a graduate of the College of William & Mary. He is the author of several books, including Welcome to the USSA, Corruption in the Government and Media, and Separation of Business and State. He's also a documentarian who has produced a variety of films dealing with a wide range of subjects, such as uh, the Second Iraq War, 9-11, the anthrax attacks, uh, covert operations of the Central Intelligence Agency, and the JFK assassination. Ryan, how are you doing tonight? How was that intro? Is that good? That was a very good intro. Well, and I've got a new documentary coming out, Empire Unmasked. When is that due out? I'm hoping before September 11th of this year, just an arbitrary date for myself. But I think I'll finish it the end of this month. But then i got a review process. I'm going to let people uh, give their feedback and then alter it some more so I don't have... 60 different versions of it like I did War by Deception. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, if people want to support your work can do that, right? Yeah, they can. They can go over to ancreport.com right now, and there's a little button there where people can donate and get perks and sign books and DVDs and so on. That would help. I really appreciate it. Okay. We're, we're yes. over halfway there now. I got over the half mark yesterday on my birthday. I got past the halfway mark. Oh, so. good. Okay. That was good. Uh, what caught my attention tonight was uh, your, or recently was your article you posted, John Stewart taking down a peg. It was a article that was, I guess, in response to his rant regarding the Confederate flag controversy that was stirred up by this uh, latest shooting in that black church down in Charleston, South Carolina, by a young man whose, uh, I guess, motivations were allegedly racist. Um, you provide a revisionist analysis of the nature and causes of the so-called American Civil War. I guess let's start with the American Civil War. Let's start with that name. How do you feel about that name for that uh, event? Well, that's, I mean, I'll say that too sometimes because it's just commonly what people call it. But uh, my grandparents always called it the War of Northern Aggression. Some people call it the War for Southern Independence. Um, and others say the Civil War as if that's a more neutral term, but I, I think, you know, the war for Southern independence is more accurate, actually, than a civil war. And there's certainly nothing civil about it, and I know that's not what that means in that context, but uh, saying the Southern war for independence is what it was, and so I think that's a more accurate way to describe it. That's because when the South uh, uh, chose to secede from the Union, uh, in the winter uh, of 1860, 1861, they weren't looking to take over the North. They were looking to leave, uh, get free of the central government. So they weren't trying to take power in D.C. They were trying to just declare their independence. Well, right. I mean, Lincoln put a naval blockade on his own states, which is what kicked it off. But, yeah, they were trying to declare independence. They they hadn't even built the Navy. The, the Union inherited the Navy. And the Southerners were refer, referred to as the rebels because everyone saw it as rebellion against the, the Union. I mean, they were trying to lead. And it wasn't the first time that American states had a secessionist movement. Uh, that had happened before in the Northeast as well. And nobody questioned the constitution, constitutionality of it at that time, back in uh, 1814, all the way through the 1820s. Uh, there was the uh, secessionist movement in the Northeast, and at that time, it, it was fine. Now they didn't succeed. They didn't succeed in seceding, 
But when they were doing it, nobody tried to claim it was unconstitutional, and, and Jefferson didn't send the army after him, and Madison didn't send the, the army after them. But it was over similar reasons. It was over the um, the Embargo Act of uh, 1807, which was playing off of the Chesapeake Affair, where if people remember the War of 1812, one of one of the reasons there was because the British were attacking American ships, merchant marine ships, and forcing Americans to become British sailors uh, because they were at war with France and the Napoleonic Wars. And so as a response, the Americans limited trade to Britain and France, both as a way of preventing Americans from getting captured and forced to become sailors and uh, to try and punish uh, the, the British economically by suspending trade. That wasn't very popular and it really hurt New England in particular and Massachusetts in particular. And so they wanted to secede. They, they tried to negotiate a separate peace agreement with the British during the War of 1812 at the tail end. However, as they were doing that is when Andrew Jackson got his great victories in the South. So they ended up looking like buffoons, but they were trying to secede and it was over the, the trade issues at that point in time as well. And if I recall, uh, Jackson's victory in New Orleans occurred after the treaty was signed, right? Right, uh, but the word hadn't gotten to them. Yeah. And they were trying to negotiate in the Northeast, like George Cabot and those guys were trying to have a separate peace agreement. And so, it, you know, it was similar reasons why. I mean, they were ready to secede from the Union. And before they were going to do that, they tried to issue constitutional amendments. And it failed. And the U.S. ended up winning that war anyway. But there were several reasons for the war in 1812. But one of them was that it was the trade restrictions. But as far as why northern states wanted to secede from the Union, it was absolutely over the trade issue. And, of course, the right to secession was sort of presumed because under the original meaning of the Constitution, uh, the enumerated and uh, uh, specific powers specifically uh, specifically lacking in that was the power to prevent secession. So there was no power granted to the federal government. Well, right. And yeah. Jefferson and Madison were the consecutive presidents, and they knew that because they wrote the Constitution. So mm -hmm. there was no debate about it. And that was in the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions Regarding right. interposition and nullification, which South Carolina invoked later on. Um, but as many as three states specifically mentioned secession in their ratification documents. I recall Rhode Island, New York, and Virginia, I believe, said specifically that should they ever perceive that, that the powers granted to, the, to the, the, the general government were being abused, they retain the right to secede from the Union. And that was not disputed, which meant by law that it applied to all the states. Well, Lincoln really didn't care what the law was or the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, you know, he had a crisis to deal with. What is it? A, you know, this isn't a suicide pact, is it? <laughs> you know. But I think for I mean, people have to understand the Henry Clay's protective tariffs and the economic system to mm -hmm. get a handle on what would end up um, happening before Lincoln got into office, and that's there was a long back and forth struggle with protective tariffs and it really started with Alexander Hamilton and they the argument was you know during the infancy they need to protect uh, industry from already established European industries and the way to do that was through the tariff now constitutionally the tariff was for gaining revenue not to protect certain industries but Henry Clay saw it as a way to get revenue and to protect American industries but 
by American, he means Northern American industries. And that's what ended up happening. They started selectively putting tariffs on specific goods like cotton and wool, et cetera, that were produced in the agricultural sections of the United States, which were all in the South at that time. So it really hurt them. They raised the rate in 1816 to 20%, from 11% to 20%. And this was devastating. And this hurt the New England states and the South, but the Mid-Atlantic region was pretty much unharmed by it, and they gained a lot in industry, or so they thought. Um, but it actually would have hurt them too. And this had been argued against it. Uh, they had first the 1860 tariff up to 20%. John Randolph opposed it from Virginia. And he made very articulate arguments of why that wouldn't work. And he talked about the competitive advantage that was written by Adam Smith um, on free trade and why free trade was better than mercantilism. But uh, it continued anyway. And they tried to raise the tariff again in 1820. And this was a huge fight. John Taylor uh, argued against it. He said, this is going to reduce consumption. You know, if you tax and put duties on imports, then that's going to raise the cost of those. And so consumers are going to spend less and they're going to buy less for manufacturing because those prices will go up as they'll have regional monopolies and so on. And so that tariff failed. But by 1824, they finally got it pushed through and they raised it 30 percent on a number of goods. Cotton was one of those. And it was very devastating. This is where you start to get the clear divide between North and South, because there were some Northerners that argued against it. Daniel Webster from Massachusetts argued against it. And a man he would end up debating with later, Robert Hine from South Carolina, they both articulated how you can't favor one economic sector over others. You can't favor industry over agriculture and commerce, but that's what they were doing. But when you look at that 1824 tariff, 47 out of 48 representatives from the South voted no. I think the one that was yes vote was from Tennessee. But 47 out of 48, pretty much unanimously against it. And this is what happened. So that passed in the latter half of 1824. And at that time, cotton was 21 cents a pound. And that's a lot of cotton for a pound. And by the next year, it was only 12 cents a pound. And by 1826, it had dropped to 8.8 .8 cents a pound. So from 21 cents to 9 cents, basically a little less than 9 cents a pound, which devastated states like South Carolina in particular. They, the South was providing 80% of the cotton in the world and about 100%, almost 100% of the cotton from the U.S. was from the South. And that was 80% of the cotton used in the entire world. And it's because of the Civil War that cotton manufacturers, uh, producers in Egypt, and which became the new dynasties there, came to prominence and got their wealth, uh, which led to a lot of geopolitical uh, events all throughout the Middle East and Europe was, you know, scrambling to find replacements for this cotton export. But that was a, another consequence of the Civil War. But for South Carolina, it was so devastating to have that uh, industry scapegoated for the stake of uh, northern manufacturers. And then in 1828, they raised it again. This is the, the worst. They are already talking about secession. And in 1828, it went from 32% to 50%. And the Senate voted 
26 to 21 on that. But when you break it down, 94% of the South voted no. And also about two-thirds of New England voted no. So it wasn't clearly just North and South. It was the South and New England versus the Mid-Atlantic and West. And the Mid-Atlantic and West, uh, of course, they all voted yes. And I mean, a 50% tax is insane. And anybody knows, everyone knows that. 50%, it just broke, it broke everything. It was called the Tariff of Abomination. And that's when uh, Calhoun, who was the vice president at the time from South Carolina, declared that states should be able to decide whether a law was unconstitutional or not. And this is where we get the process of nullification, which people are talking about today, trying to use nullification against things like the NSA. And, and he said the whole system of legislation imposing duties on imports not for revenue, but for the protection of one branch of industry at the expense of others is unconstitutional, unequal, and oppressive, and calculated to corrupt the public virtue and destroy liberty of the country. That was John Calhoun. And so through 1828 to 1832, that party of nullification party in South Carolina took control of the legislature. And so by 1833, once the nullification party took a majority that's when they capitulate and say okay we'll lower the tariff back to uh the 1824 rate which was still too high i mean they, it's like raising it and then raising it again and then only lowering it back to the first one that you raise it to so the south wasn't having it they were being broken by the 1824 tariff anyway and so the 1828 was even worse and people, uh, apologists on the civil war, like to point out, well, the tariff rate was the lowest it had been in 40 years. Well, yes and no. I mean, that's because they only lowered it back to what they had already raised it to. That's kind of like Obama cutting future spending. That's not a cut. You can't cut increases. You know, future, we're going to raise it by $4 billion. Now we're only going to raise it by $3 billion. That's a raise of $3 billion. That's not a cut of $1 billion. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and all they did was go back. And then they did agree to start reducing the tariff back down to 20%, which was still high. But they were going to get rid of that 30% increase because the tariff wasn't uniform. It was 37% on average, but on cotton and wool and iron and certain things, it was extremely high. And they wanted to cut that down to 20%. And it's, it is in the Constitution that it should be uniform anyway. And so they made a compromise. They said, okay, over the next two years and two-year intervals, we'll lower it and lower it back down to there. But by the time Lincoln gets in the office, and this is also post-Mexican War, which has a lot to do with that, they, he, he, he raised the tariff 47%, so basically back to 50%. And they just they couldn't handle that, and they seceded. South Carolina seceded. Well, there are several southern states that hadn't, and... Lincoln put a naval blockade on North Carolina, Virginia, and South Carolina to enforce the import and export tax. And that is why South Carolina fired on Fort Sumter, is because that was the, the U.S. Navy's uh, fort that was enforcing the policing of this tax. And South Carolina said, we seceded. We're not part of the United States, so you can't collect taxes on us. You can't enforce these import-export taxes. And Lincoln said, I'm doing it anyway. And so they fired on Fort Sumter and took it over. 
and then and Lincoln had put a naval blockade up on three other states. And so Virginia and North Carolina seceded because why is the Navy blockading them? They didn't do anything at all. And they were part of the United States at that time. And because of that blockade is what pushed them over the edge. Virginia seceded and North Carolina was the last state to secede and join the South. But had Virginia and North Carolina not seceded, there would not have been a civil war. I mean, almost 80% of the war was fought in Virginia and the bulk of the Southern army was from Virginia and North Carolina. Those were the most populous states at the time. Today, you can look at Florida and Texas as large states, but at that time, they were nothing. They were some of the smallest states. The largest state was Virginia and then North Carolina. It's reversed today, but there wouldn't have been a civil war without that. And they all had different reasons for secession, but it was over this policy. And people bring up slavery as an issue, but you can look at the appeasement. The North was not trying to free the slaves. The North was trying to preserve the Union so that they could preserve their economic hegemony, which was clear. The Corwin Amendment was passed. It was introduced by two Northerners, one from Ohio, one from New York, which um, stated that it made a constitutional amendment that the federal government would not involve in the state's industry, including labor, which included slavery, that they were not going to abolish slavery. They were going to leave that institution in place. And this was passed, but it wasn't ratified because the southern states wouldn't ratify it. They seceded from the Union, so they couldn't vote on it. Now, in the Union's opinion, they were still part of the United States and weren't allowed to secede. So even though the, the Congress had passed it, to get a constitutional amendment, it has to be ratified by the states, and the southern states didn't ratify it. But Lincoln tried. He personally wrote the governors of each state's letters saying, here's this amendment. We're not going to oppose slavery. You can keep your slaves. And the South seceded anyway, because that's not that was never why they were seceding to begin with. The tariff policy was the main reason, and offering them to keep their slaves didn't matter. I mean, they had a constitutional amendment already passed. All they had to do was ratify it. They could have kept every single one of their slaves, and there was still a civil war, and they still seceded. Not one single state took that deal. Which is an important point because offering to enshrine slavery in the Constitution, which is what the Corn Amendment did, if the states were concerned, if the southern states were more concerned, were primarily concerned about preserving this institution of slavery, they would have taken that deal, and they didn't. There, obviously, there are other concerns. So, right. If they yeah. were, I mean, Missouri was maybe the one exception where the, slavery was an issue there, but the, the reason the North was opposing slavery was in Lincoln's own words. This was with Kansas, uh, actually, as well is that if people remember Bleeding Kansas and that story, because that's the yeah. kind of high school thing you'll get, is they'll focus on this because it's the one thing that kind of supports their argument. Lincoln didn't want to expand slave states because he was a white separatist, and he did not want whites and blacks to mix. And he wrote this out. He said, if we can keep slavery out of Kansas, we keep blacks out of Kansas, Negroes, what he said. Yeah. And if you can keep them out, then you can keep the races from mixing. I mean, he was part of the Back to Liberia movement. He wanted to send blacks back to Africa. He supported that while he was a congressman, too. So it's not just something he said, you know, as president to appease people. That was his life philosophy. You know, long before the Civil War, he wanted blacks out. It's part of the Illinois Constitution and the Black Code laws that blacks, foreign blacks weren't even allowed to enter the state for more than 10 days. They wanted them out. They wanted a white America. 
uh, everyone was racist in the 1860s. And you can point to, oh, well, this certain general and this certain colonel in the Southern Army said these racist things. Yeah, so that you can say the same thing with the Northern Army, too. I mean, Grant himself had slaves, and he becomes the president, and he was the principal uh, Union general. And Grant kicked Jews out of the Treasury. I mean, there was plenty of racism. And, of course, General Custers, who infamously went west, slaughtering Native Americans. And then post-Civil War, the Chinese were enslaved. And it was not indentured servitude. It was slavery. And they blew them up with dynamite and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Murdered them. I mean, and really, the Civil War is when industry took control of government completely. They complete, they completed their capture of government. And these it's northern, the beginning of the it's the beginning of the American oligarchy, because you could say it is. It yeah. is a plutocracy, and that's the, yeah, it was an oligarchy. We started with the railroads, in which Lincoln was a railroad lawyer, but so that was is Sherman. <laughs> so was Sherman, and yeah. and that's another thing, you know, when people arguing about the Confederate flags and this and that. The the North did lose more people than the South in the Civil War, and they lost more battles, but they also started with a lot more people. So percentage wise, the South lost more but about a quarter of a million of the deaths in the civil war were southerners and their cities were burned most of them were civilians it, it wasn't just their army it was civilians and a lot of people starved to death which is how most people die in most wars up until modern times was through starvation and that's blacks and whites by the way mm -hmm. and sherman just went through he burned atlanta you know he wanted to make them out he just burned cities so people were joining the Southern Army to defend their homes. It wasn't about tariffs or slavery or anything. For a lot of people, it was, well, there's an invading army coming, and they're going to burn down our city, so I'm going to fight them. Uh, and that's what that, I mean, anybody would do that. And so a lot of the Confederate veterans were defending their homeland from an invasion force. And that's what happened. I mean, the first shots of the Civil War after Fort Sumter, which was legit because they were taxing a state that was no longer part of the United States, was Lincoln sent troops down through Maryland. He wanted to protect D.C. And the 6th Massachusetts, at the time in Baltimore, the rail lines didn't go through the city. So they had to go down the, the northern Baltimore, walk through the city, and then get on another train and go south. And... Sixth Massachusetts was getting booed because he went. They went down with guns and uniform to show their force because they were worried about Maryland joining the South, which would mean D.C. would be surrounded. And the crowd was jeering them and booing them. And the the Northern Army fired on civilians and killed twelve people. And then the civilians fired back and killed four Union mm -hmm. soldiers. And the state song in Maryland, Maryland, my Maryland, is is based on that event. I mean, it's a song about <laughs> being fired on by the U.S. Army. Uh, but that's how Lincoln conducted things. He closed down newspapers. He wouldn't allow political dissent. He arrested people without trial. Thousands of people just threw them in jail. He arrested no the, the, the mayor of Baltimore, didn't he? And also uh, uh, closed the state legislature down, didn't he? He did, and he, when he yeah. threw judges in jail. Say, oh, you don't agree? Well, you're going to jail. He just took the judge and put him in jail. He didn't care. Uh, he was the original neocon. And <laughs> it's these guys from the railroad companies, Rockefellers, etc. And it's these Hamilton and Clay, the banking fanatics, that end up winning. 
you know, Jackson and Jefferson and a lot of these Southerners had opposed that the whole time. But from Lincoln onward, the, the North and the banking families reigned supreme. And it was after the Civil War that they went West and completed the genocide of American Indians. And that, I mean, all through the 1890s, they slaughtered Indians. And at the tail end of that was 1898, which is the Spanish-American War, which was started by false pretexts. And from 1898 to 1934, you had all the banana wars where the, the U.S. was using military force to invade Central American states and Caribbean islands and set up military occupations. They occupied Haiti. They occupied Cuba. They invaded Honduras. They invaded uh, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and so on. Uh, all through that period between 1898 and 1934. And it really was just a, an expansion. This Asian Pacific pivot they talk about, that's when the U.S. took the Philippines as well. It was part of the Treaty of Paris from the Spanish. So the Spanish-American War led to, you know, opening the doors for the U.S. to just have carte blanche to attack the, the South some more, to, to hit all the Caribbean and Central American states. They had already had two wars with Mexico, and Germans were supporting Mexico during World War One, so they weren't reinvaded. But basically, everyone else was openly done too. And from 1934 on, they switched to the policy of uh, puppet governments instead of occupations. So, as, you know, Batista was put in power and so on. <clears throat> and you have the kind of uh, corporate takeover style warfare with the yeah. United States Company and so on. But, I mean, this that is not that long removed from the Civil War and the Indian Wars. I mean, Geronimo, which a lot of people probably only know from Bugs Bunny jumping out of a plane and yelling his name, was alive in, in the 1905 when the Wright brothers were flying the airplane they were still putting Apache Indians on trains and shipping them to Florida to live in concentration camps. Uh, and, you know, these these were men who were alive during the Civil War. Yeah, it's just a generation or so, yeah. It's just, just they're, they're older now, but, I mean, those people were alive during Reconstruction and so on. I mean, this is that was their policies. This is what it led to, just unabashed militarism and empire. And... American. Well, first, make an observation. But going back to uh, uh, South Carolina and the nullification crisis, is that's a testimony to the right of secession because when they threatened to secede, I know Jackson tried to push through a force bill, but I guess Henry Clay stepped in and negotiated. The threat of secession led people to negotiate to lower the tariff to make it uh, less destructive. So without, right, and it, and it yeah. worked in a way. Yeah, they started taking it down in two-year intervals. And there was a period there, and but the real reason, and just this is my opinion, mm -hmm. nullification threat, you know, was a threat enough to say, all right, we're going to lower this tariff. But yeah. the real reason was the Mexican War. Who fought that war? The South. Yeah, the generals. It, made it was the Tennessee it. Volunteers and so on. And this is the ironic thing too. Robert E. Lee was involved in that and was instrumental in defeating Mexico at that time. It wasn't like now. It was much more even. I mean, Mexicans had cavalry and the same kind of guns and all. Mm -hmm. They just got out general. And that war was over uh, regional scapegoating as well. The North Mexico had only been an independent country for 11 years. They had won their independence from Spain. And in year 11 of that, the northern half of Mexico, which included Texas at the time, was angry at the southern half because the southern half was taking all the taxes and spending it in Mexico City and the southern side and ignoring the region up north. 
Now, really, the region up north wasn't really part of Mexico other than on paper because it was still completely controlled by American Indians, but they just sort of drew a map and said, this is ours. But uh, that part seceded and ended up trying to set up its own state and then later join the the Union of the United States because of the United States Army and the Texicans and Northern Mexicans fighting the Southern Mexicans. But it was the uh, General Lee, well, he wasn't a general at the time, but he would become a general, but it was Robert E. Lee and also Northern generals fighting to take territory away from Mexico, which became a slave state, by the way. So at that time, it was okay for the United States to take more territory from another state through force and make a slave state. And then they also created California, which used to be part of Mexico. So you could argue, hey, is that a flag, that California flag or that Texas flag racist? Because Mexico abolished slavery in 1829, right? Uh, And yet now their territory joined a a slave state. Uh, The United States still had slaves. And the North had slaves too, by the way. I mean, five states had slaves during the Civil War. And other, uh, you could have private slaves. And there were also freemen in the South. So it wasn't like clearly like, oh, uh, across this line, there are no slaves. And that was completely bogus. And it it also worked against too. Because why would the North have five slave states if they're fighting against slavery and during the emancipation proclamation he only freed slaves in the south not in the north and that was more about keeping the british out of the war than anything else and then the civil war didn't even free the slaves the 13th amendment did and three northern states refused to ratify it and only one southern state refused so you just lost 600,000 people in a war to free the slaves now here's the amendment to free the slaves, and three northern states vote against it? No, of course not. But of course, there was wait. <laughs> the war wasn't about slavery. Yeah, and of course, the New England um, it was it was the New England shipping companies that made money shipping the slaves across the Atlantic Ocean before the inter- international slave trade was shut down by a southerner. Yeah, and the, it was that capital from the slave trade. Slave trade. And yeah. yeah, it was the American flag on all those ships. The American yeah. flag was also designed by racists who owned slaves. The Ross family had slaves. But that's not, no one says the American flag represents slavery, even though they had slaves for so long in such a long period, or genocide, even though that continued after the Civil War too, and genociding American Indians. I mean, they, they murdered them. And when they lost in war, they salted the lands and started shooting the buffalo to starve people to death. I just, I'm going to let me tell you something about General Custer because this just disgusts me to no end. He's a cavalry general in the Union Army. He ends up leading the charge and slaughtering people at wounded knee. And this guy, they used to sell young Indian women to crowds of cowboys to be raped as sex slaves. They would put them up, strip them naked on the stage. I mean, girls as young as 10 and sell them in auctions to gangs. What the gangs would do is they would all buy one girl together. They'd pull their money and and buy her and rape her to death in Custer's corrals. And he personally had Indian mistresses that he would fornicate with uh, nightly until his wife moved out there. (laughs) And of course, he ended up getting killed. And they make him out to be this hero in the, you know, Wild Bill plays and all. And then later the Hollywood Westerns and the Indians were like Arabs today. They're completely demonized. and Dime store novels, yeah. 
And it's stories, oh, it was Custer's hubris. He tried to kill too many Indians. Like, well, yes and no. Uh, Crazy Horse had actually went around Custer and cut off his supply lines days before and set up this battle. Custer was running out of water and ammunition, and he had to attack because had he waited, he would have lost everything anyway. He got forced into that battle. But they never give the American Indians credit for the generalship and how they had outsmarted him. They they just had to blame it on Custer's hubris instead, which is a sort of a crass and stupid look at history. It's just ignoring the weeks prior to Little Bighorn. But, I mean, these guys did not care about blacks or Indians or slaves or human rights or anything like that. The North wanted to preserve the Union. And Lincoln made that very clear. He stated if he could preserve the Union without freeing slaves, he would. If he could do it by freeing slaves, he would. And if he could do it by freeing some and not others, he would. That his principal purpose was to preserve the Union. They didn't give a damn about blacks. As the largest race riot in American history was in New York City during the Civil War. You had the draft riots, they were called, but they went around lynching and hanging black people. And It's like that today. I mean, New York cops can choke black people on yeah. film and get acquitted by the state. But no one goes after the New York state flag for that. The worst race riots in the 60s were in, like, in Detroit and L.A. and uh, uh, D.C., yeah. not in the South. <laughs> so Of course it was. And yeah. I mean, there were Jim Crow laws, which were not just against blacks. It was against the poor because there were literacy tests. And, you know, to repeal the Jim Crow laws, they actually used Confederate flags in their movement. And the Mississippi Freedom Party, which was endorsed by Martin Luther King, had a confederate flag with a white and black hand uh, doing a handshake mm -hmm. it was considered you know we are rebelling against the establishment uh which because the establishment was pro-segregation and the rebels were wanted to desegregate and again the confederate flags came out and people also like to say oh the confederate flag was added to south carolina and alabama uh during the civil rights movement against blacks no the Confederate flags were added because it was centennial of the Civil War. It was 1961, the war was from 1861, and it was a 100-year anniversary. That's why they did it. It was nothing to do with the Civil Rights. The Civil Rights Movement was using the flag itself to rebel against segregation. But the American expansion, uh, you could say that the people that perpetrated the slaughter of the American Indians, the Plains Indians, they were bloody during the Civil War, though. Like the Buffalo Soldiers, the vaunted Buffalo Soldiers, they, they were sent west to go uh, wreak havoc out west, correct? Sure. Well, also the Cherokee Nation also seceded, and you know, they, were, they, were in, they said they weren't part of the Union anyway, but they did secessionist papers, and broke with the confederation they had their own confederation and fought on the side of the south and so they were targeted mm -hmm. which is ironic too because they'd already been put on the trail of tears you know well, yeah, Jackson, they yeah. still saw it they knew that these northern railroad industrialists once they got their roads going west to connect with california everything in between was becoming white and american and they were going to get killed so they fought on the side of the south they're really fighting on the side of themselves obviously but they they see they saw that Here's a nation that doesn't abide his constitution, and this is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And there, there, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, with building railroads, extending transportation, modernizing. But when you uh, um, when you throw all uh, morality aside, all sense of justice and fair play, and 
basically if you can do what you want to the people that are already there, you can kind of uh, make them pay. You can externalize the cost. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, America yeah. had built all its canals and railroads through private investment and entrepreneurs. Yeah. <clears throat> but with Lincoln, it became mercantilism. Yeah. It was this is the merger of state and business where they are just start subsidizing certain industries at the expense of others and creating monopolies. And you, you see that today with drug companies and weapon companies, Lockheed Martin's 90% of its business is from the U.S. government. And we pay drug companies through agricultural subsidies where they will give farm subsidies to ranches and farms, but a large portion of that money goes to pay for pesticides and antibiotics and all these uh, steroids and so on from drug industries. So it's really an indirect subsidy for big pharma. But causes, selectively yeah. so, and they selectively enforce copyright uh, law to favor the establishment industries, so that upstarts and innovation just get swallowed up and rewarded to Dow, Searle, and Chemical, and the, yeah. those the companies, uh, Dupont especially, um, because they have a lot of money and they can influence government to do that. And you really saw that with the Commerce Clause and the railroads, you know, go across several states. And so this was, a, you know, a pretext for the federal government to grab more power and reward money to them. And uh, but that, you know, putting tariffs up to 50 percent, as they did in the tariff of abomination, that really got the ball rolling for nullification and threats. And after the Mexican War was settled and Texas was a state and they were talking about going west. Lincoln reinstituted the tariffs and everyone knew. I mean, he wasn't even on the ballot in southern states and he still got elected to become president. The North knew that they had a larger population and they could vote themselves money at the expense of everyone else. The South was only 25 percent of the population and they were paying 80 percent of the taxes. And How does a quarter of the country pay 80 percent of the taxes? I mean, if that happened today, there would definitely be secession. And those pay, and of course, those tax payments are subsidizing the very things that are undermining the southern economy. They were, and yeah. and also, it, it came out of the blue because a lot of things were bought on credit, and the and the South made money seasonally when my whatever crop they're growing. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, and so if you bought whatever textiles or piano or something, and then all of a sudden this large tariff comes and. 15%, and, you know, and cotton's dropping down to $0.09 cents from $0.21 cents in two years, and then they couldn't pay. And, it, you know, another thing that exacerbated this was the second bank of the United States through inflation caused a depression, and that was the pretext for creating the new tariffs. So, like, if we create these new tariffs, we can get out of the depression. Well, it just made it worse, obviously. But that was caused by the banks. Uh, and the South was prospering well. Um, but the Europeans were buying goods from the South, not the North. The Europeans had already established their their factories and manufacturing base. They're not going to buy from the dinky American one, but they were buying cotton, tobacco, and, and agricultural crops. And the North was jealous. They didn't want the South making money. They didn't want them to prosper. They wanted their own uh, manufacturing industries to prosper. And they had for a time during the War of 1812 because all exports were banned. And that was a time where American industry did grow because they had to sell internally. But uh, it was also trying times for everyone. I mean, the, the basic, you know, living standard dropped considerably. It really hurts consumers to arbitrarily give somebody a monopoly. And the other thing with the tariffs was compounded by Europeans putting tariffs on the United States. So not only 
where did they have a 50% tax and then later down to 28% or 20%, which is still way too high. They couldn't export their goods either because Britain and France started putting tariffs on the United States. Well, what were they buying from the United States? Cotton, tobacco, and agricultural products. So again, the South couldn't sell its goods and it couldn't buy manufactured goods from Europe either, which forced them to have to buy internally and on credit and without being able to to make revenue themselves because they were so reliant on exports. And so it's no wonder that obviously uh, the war starts in South Carolina and it starts by firing on uh, at a port where they collected the money. Now, of course, start at a slave plantation. Now, yeah. there were people that went around trying to get slave owners to support the war effort for the, the simple fact that they had money. So they started preaching slavery, this and that, to try and get their financial support. But, you know, two thirds of the South didn't own slaves. And most of them, mostly it was just state pride. I'm from Virginia and I'm going to fight for Virginia. Things like that. That simple, that basic. It's just like that now. I mean, look at people in sports teams or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Regional, regional oil. And the North came down to, build, to Bull Run, you know, with a big invasion force and got repelled twice. Uh, and people joined because they just identified with being a Southerner. It wasn't even a particular ideological thing. Now, the government obviously started wars over the tariff policies and things and trade. But the basic soldier was there because that's where they were from, and they are fighting for that. And the Confederate battle flag becomes a symbol of rebellion and Southern identity post-war during Reconstruction because you have to understand a quarter million people were killed Entire cities had been burned down. Their rights were taken away after the war, even after the assassination, and then it got worse. And they had to rebuild from nothing. And this really set the South back decades in terms of education and other matters because nothing was there. The schools were gone. Their infrastructure had been taken away. They had to start over. And then they had to deal with carpetbaggers and everything else. And so they bonded as a unity of, you know, we, we fought for our independence. We didn't get it. But we made it through this. We made it through Reconstruction. And they saw that battle flag as a way of sticking it to the man. They're saying, look, uh, the concessions they did get was because they fought. You know, they didn't want another civil war. Lincoln started to capitulate at the end. They needed to reunify. They needed to heal. That's why Thanksgiving all of a sudden got changed into what it is today. You know, brotherly, family, (laughs) Love, although, you know, the original Thanksgiving was celebrating the Mystic River massacres, also in the north of American Indians. Uh, That got changed by Lincoln. Um, And they, you know, they got Robert E. Lee to go out and try and reunify the country, start trying to heal. But it was the battle flag, not the Confederate flag, that people flocked to because they supported those who had fallen, the soldiers. And the United States government recognized Confederate soldiers as U.S. veterans. And that's why it bothers me deeply. I don't like desecrating the dead, period. I don't care who you are. I don't even care if it was a Stalinist, communist, or a Nazi, or whatever. You don't mess with the dead. And we've got people desecrating graves now of U.S. veterans because in their mind, they're racist. As if the Union Army wasn't also racist, you know. It was, they are all racist, pretty much. It was the 1860s. You could have done that 100 years later. They still would have been racist. <laughs> Look at the propaganda in World War II toward the Japanese. Or, yeah. I mean, it's just unapologetically racist. Uh, 
and again for American Indians, for the Chinese, for Vietnamese, the Korean War, etc. They demonize the enemy, and racism is one of those tools. And does catch you even now? If you goddamn Arabs and da 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 da, you get a lot of racism in Blackwater and these mercenary armies, and a lot of religious bigots too. They want to kill Muslims because eh? 9/11 or something collectively condemn the whole faith or the whole race, whatever. Because that does happen now and it happened then. But I wouldn't go spray paint, even though I've opposed every single one of these wars, I would never go to a soldier's grave and write racist on it. Never. Even if he was a racist, still wouldn't do it. Yeah, just uh, you don't speak ill of the dead. You, know. you don't speak ill of the dead, and you, and you don't know who that person was at all yeah. anyway. And you just can't do that. And people are doing that, and it's getting out of control. And what I see coming down the line as a consequence of this is there's going to be a big backlash. When you go around, I mean, you just when you're attacking historical monuments, memorials, graves, with a deep part of American history. And I grew up in the South, and I saw the Confederate flag my whole life. I never saw associated racism until about the 1990s, when the NAACP declared war on it. They needed something to do. And you started getting these HBO specials where skinheads and stuff would have the Confederate flag. I'm like, why do they have the Confederate flag? What's that got to do with neo-Nazis in Germany? Like, what? You know. And it was because of this race narrative. Like, the North was just the good guys that went to free <laughs> blacks from the yoke of oppression, which is just laughably inaccurate. Uh, well, yeah, the, if you look at the South itself, after the Civil War, you have this brutal war that rampages, that Union Army rampages through the South, burning cities, destroying farms, countless thousands probably starving to death in the process that aren't really factors war crimes, and then you have the brutal occupation, reconstruction, corrupt occupation. Then when the right, the whites finally reassert themselves, you're, obviously you're going to have a reaction to that. And to, to not to put any blame on the North for the conditions in the South, that's, people just completely forget about that. Um, how uh, for a better part of the century, the U.S. government did nothing uh, for, for blacks. In fact, it worked against their interests, you know, particularly with the uh, Davis-Bacon Act and much of these, the New, New worse, Deal legislation. Worse than that, what they started doing is they purposely impoverished the South and they shipped black workers up north to break to bust the unions. When the North started to unionize and for the movement in labor, they yeah, the started Foundation. bringing blacks into these Rust Belt towns to undermine the labor and and you know break the and strikes. No housing, by the way. Destroying right. ethnic neighborhoods in the process, and, and wondering and why there's fighting. First, it later, and pushed all the blacks back out, yeah. and rehired the whites once they gained control of the unions with, you know, through organized crime. They did not care about any particular race or people. These people work for profit. Period. They spun the war during the 1960s is when the Civil War became about slavery, because race was the popular theme. But, I mean, still, people were using the Confederate flag to rebel against the war in Vietnam. They had this the, uh, the battle flag shaped like a peace sign. And there were movements out because, again, it was a disproportionate number of Southerners who died in Vietnam. That's who got sent to Vietnam, blacks and poor whites, mm-hmm. or poor blacks and poor whites, disproportionately. And then with some of those whites were actually Latino, which got categorized as white in the war. And probably weren't i don't think you need racial statistics on stuff like that but whatever i mean and it's men too obviously but it was poor people who got sent in the war it's always poor people dying in a rich man's war and even during the civil war it was irish conscripts and things people were fleeing the potato famines and coming to north where 
you know, there were other Irish immigrants prior and they got conscripted in the army and promised land and money. And of course, it was never delivered. They were just used as cannon fodder. And the, the Irish and the Chinese were both used to build railroads. And part of the, the motivation for ending slavery was not altruism. It was just more cost efficient to have wage slaves than it was cattle slavery. They did the right thing for the wrong reason. They didn't care about anybody. And as you mentioned earlier, to this the Civil War itself uh, uh, was the creation uh, of all the formations of what you call the American plutocracy, oligarchy, the Rockefellers, the uh, the um, uh, Duponts, and oh, yeah. uh, and you have uh, where they begin to monopolize a lot of these things. Where they develop, uh, they take over, uh, they start opening. And all under some pretext of altruism, like oh, we're we're going. I mean, you see it today. We're going to liberate women in Afghanistan. We're going yeah. to Libya for human purposes or whatever. Well, philanthropy, right? Herds in Iraq. Yeah. It's just total disingenuous garbage. It's for resources. It's for power. It always is. But they, like what they call it the Powder Trust in World War One with the DuPonts, where they, they amass these fortunes off the carnage of World War One. and they leverage that wealth politically. And that's what the Rockefellers did. They, when it went into banking, they like you mentioned that. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> and the way they opened up universities, they changed history and historical now. They took over the American Historical Association, started hiring mm-hmm. their own professors, and this is where they, the, the um, you know, they hired Ivy Lee and uh, Edward Bernays, and they went into, <laughs> they got into media, uh, totally radio. And, uh, yeah, the Civil yeah. War had always been taught as having multiple causes, and they went over the tax and tariff policies and all of it, and that got changed later. It just became slavery. Well, the we biggest thing is you alluded to it is the, is this tactic where they started using philanthropy as cover for their misanthropy. <laughs> you know, well, exactly. We're all oh, we're we're invading Grenada because uh, communist. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. You know, you know yeah. You, the Latin Americans get you because you're you've written a lot of also Africa for that matter is where it's uh, uh you know where oh yeah neocolonialism. I did a yeah. video on that too actually. We didn't mention in the beginning. It's called – I don't have a clever title. It's just called Neocolonialism in Africa. But yeah. um, absolutely, like with Zambia, et cetera, and the, and the copper mines owned by Glencore and the, the USAID to Africa and the, the loans are predatory loans. They're not to help poor Africans like in the commercial. Oh, look at this starving kid. Don't they're you doing them, Hey, you know, they're doing it domestically too, student loans. <laughs> Yeah, but not as bad as Africa. No, it's not but, as, yeah, it's but brutal. Student loans, guaranteed yeah. loans, just you know, increase tuition. <laughs> People say, shouldn't college be affordable for the poor? I'm like, yeah, but now you've made it unaffordable for everyone. It used to the be. The person by the way. that saved money still can't go to college unless they get a loan too, yeah. because guaranteed loans, and they they, I mean, some of them are are more than like eighty thousand dollars, more yeah. than that, hundred thousand. And the same time, they've deindustrialized the economy. $100,000, you should just leave. Yeah. You're good. You're good for several years and easily. Just go start a business. Yeah. If you got hundred grand, just keep it. Like you won. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny as I, uh, how these elite interests bite out like the civil rights movement, like the NAACP and a lot of these uh, uh, black politicians where they're more or less the tools of the elite because uh, it's kind of similar what they do in Africa. They don't care about blacks. I mean – these organizations, a lot of these charity organizations, this is what happens to them too. Is they, it's the way Occupy or the Tea Party or any other modern movement gets hijacked by lunatics, you know. Mm-hmm. And you get these race hustlers that the, the NAACP 
ICP started as with legit reasons, but it quickly just yeah. it it doesn't do it doesn't further interest for minorities at all. But then Peter Bernays wasn't he a founding member? Or something? <laughs> I was like, what would he have to do with that? I mean, like, so you know. Well, yeah, I mean, they st- all these organizations start with a lofty sounding purpose, and yeah. they quickly get taken over. I mean, even the Red Cross, which did good work in the beginning. The modern Red Cross, you look at the disaster in Haiti, you know, how much money they spent to build, what, 12 houses or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, the money's just squandered because no one looks at it. And that's the thing is you can, if you can attach yourself to some unquestionable good thing, like we're doing this for education, we're doing this for the environment, we're doing this for to help this minority group or women or something like that. Everyone's like, oh, I'm for that. I'm, I, of course, I support that. And... But that's just the theme, you know. They're collecting money to pay off superintendents in a large bureaucracy. Or, you know, they yeah, they went into Haiti, but it's more or less just a, a way of enriching themselves. And very little of it actually goes to the people they, you know, supposedly are there to help. Same and, thing with Doctors Without Borders, you know. It's, it, it, which is sad, you know. Yeah. The Red Cross was used as a pretext in the Soviet Union too, but well, yeah, the NGOs, the whole NGO uh, meme or strategy, you know, against yep. the, the and, Russia. But you can categorically yes. reject them. You have to look at NGOs and charity organizations on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, like pretty much all the real big <laughs> big ones you know of are bad, are corrupt, um, because the government takes takes control. Yeah. The moment that you if people you understood the tariff policies of the Civil War, I don't think they would be so confused about TPP and why that matters. Mm-hmm. But they just people just don't understand. We, like there was no income tax, right? In the United States, we still had roads and schools and a post office and everything without an income tax, but there were large t- taxes on tariffs. But you had a quarter of the population paying eighty percent of the taxes, and that is why they wanted to form their own set of nations. And the Confederate Constitution, what they changed is that Article 1, Section 8, where they got rid of the General Welfare Clause uh, because they wanted it, duties to be uniform so that you couldn't specifically tax a certain type of good. It would just have to be on goods, not just cotton or just wool or what have you. And they added a line item veto and they set term limits, all stuff that we support today. But they had it back in the 1860s. Well, you know... Uh... Coming up on the final, uh, I guess, six minutes of our interview. Um, so the American Civil War, misnomer. Obviously, we covered that. It was sure. obviously war for Southern independence. I want to say for... something about the flag, too. Yeah, yeah, good. Because it this flag controversy. Like, they're ruining my childhood here, taking it off the Dukes of Hazard and things. <laughs> and this is like this. I mean, it's been everywhere. It was like. It's an entertainment. You had Leonard Skinner and Kid Rock and musical bands that had it forever. Like Kid Rock was a top-selling musician in the late 90s, early 2000s, and had Confederate flags in his music videos. He had them in his concerts, and no one said a thing. And he sold records in North, South, wherever, and it wasn't an issue yet. He had Stone Cold Steve Austin in professional wrestling with it, and no one said he was racist or anything. It was just he's from Texas. You know, It's just a Southern yeah. thing. Then you had shows... Like the Dukes of Hazard, which was again, I'm just naming stuff that were top selling things because Kid Rock was, Stone Cold was, Dukes of Hazard became the show for its time period. It was the most widely watched many seasons, and 
that was based on real people from North Carolina, and they had the Traveler was the General Lee. General Lee's horse was named the Traveler, and yeah, that was yeah. in the car when they were bootlegging. And so Bo and Luke, it was set in Georgia, but it was based on real people from North Carolina that actually did that, who were cousins and all that. And so they had the General Lee, and there was a Confederate battle flag on it, and no one paid no mind. There's absolutely nothing racist in that show. The show was about bucking the law, and it was uh, you corrupt, know, corrupt local officials, yeah. Boss hog and corrupt, you know, corrupt politicians and cops yeah. trying to take the Duke farm, trying to take the land away. And so, as you know, part of Southern culture and rebellion and independence and self sufficiency, they were having none of it. And they had wholesome values. And they were Christian. They they prayed before they ate and things like that. <laughs> and they were bootleggers. <laughs> they were bootleggers, yeah. <clears throat> or Jesse had been. They were trying to get, become race car drivers or something. Yeah. You know, whatever. It was a fun show. And Daisy Duke, of course, you know, she invented Daisy Dukes as part of our culture. I mean, Daisy Dukes exists because of Daisy Duke. That woman, Catherine Bach, designed those uh, booty shorts. And, you know, they all went on to do different things. Cooter became a congressman in Virginia. He was the mechanic in the show. And Ben Jones, yeah. Yeah, Luke became a country star and so on. And, you know, Bo was from New York, uh, lied about where he was from, lied about his age. You <laughs> know, he got the part. But he was great as Bo Duke. And, um, named after Beauregard, you know, and they couldn't find anything racist in, in that show. But they just said, well, the flag's just a symbol of racism, even though there's absolutely nothing portraying racism in it. They're just like, well, it's the flag, right? We're like, well, obviously, you know, you have all these many decades of Southern culture and music and entertainment and television shows, etc., with this flag as a symbol of rebellion and as a symbol of Southern heritage forever. And that is clearly how a lot of people see that flag and have used that flag. For, for There's tons of examples. But it's because they put the microscope on the Ku Klux Klan and the idiots like this. They're like, see, they're racist and they have this flag. Therefore, that's what the flag is, the meaning. And yet the Ku Klux Klan also has American flags. They also have a Christian cross. And I'm not a Christian, but... I know that that's not what the cross represents. Yeah. But you could make an argument that actually that symbol's killed more people than all the above. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Christians today, you know, normal Protestant, Catholic, whatever that live in America, do not want to lynch people and hang yeah. them. And that is extreme. And the the clan, the uniform is the shape of a cross, and they have a burning cross. That is their symbol, you know. And then some of them go around with. Everything from Confederate flags to German swastikas and stuff. You know, they're idiots. They don't get to own any of those symbols, the cross or the stars and bars or any of that. You know, well, they, they just half of them are probably federal agents anyway. <laughs> most of them are FBI and most of them are in the north. They're more skinheads in New Jersey than they yeah. are in any state. New Jersey also rejected the ratifying 13th Amendment, yeah. too. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they shouldn't. You know, the hell with those people. They don't get to take the flag. And I hope more Southerners, and a lot of people don't want to get accused of being racist, so they hide from this. But it be, it would have been perfectly fine to have a, a rally of uh, Confederate supporters to go against the Klan and the Black Panthers. They're both racist organizations, yeah. you know. And I hope that happens. But it should have been up to the people of South Carolina to decide about the fate of their own flag without pressure from all these other people that don't live there, have you know, have no idea. They these millennials grew up and on the internet and they see memes and stuff. I saw the I, I mean I lived in Virginia, 
where most of the Civil War was fought. And from Fredericksburg through just Shenandoah, whatever, there are battlefields, memorials, museums, they're everywhere. And you see Confederate flags on the back of a truck, a bumper sticker, what, just at someone's house, whatever. And it's just a, I'm a Southerner. That's what it's always meant. And there are black people with them, too. They're, they're everybody. I had an uncle who's Chinese, and he loved it. He had a Confederate flag in his business forever. He was very hardcore American because he left communist China, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, anyway, it's... Well, it's, I, I think it's a, it, the whole point is it's a cultural agenda or corporate or corporate agenda where they're trying to destroy any I- idea of local identity, local patriotisms to create this. Well, they want to divide. Culture. And yeah, there's a divide and conquer strategy there too, and they're doing that. They want to divide people, and they knew that would piss off millions of people, which it did. And but they're always going to put the camera on the racist. Oh yeah, yeah. They never. Yeah, they'll. You know, that's why I put my flag back up and said, look, I'm not going to let you steal this symbol. A lot of people died fighting the corporatocracy from under this banner. And I understand their reasons and they fought to protect their own homeland. And even though I oppose the Civil War, I I pretty much oppose nearly every war. um, I still honor veterans. Um, And I think when when you're attacked, because that was a war where... We actually got attacked. And of course, you can't negotiate for peace while you're being attacked or occupied. Like, I, can, I can understand why Hezbollah or Palestinians fight Israelis. I can understand why Crazy Horse killed Custer. I, like, I would have supported the war for their side, but not the war of aggression. And that's what the Northeast did. It was pure aggression uh, and pure greed. And had nothing to do with wanting to free slaves. There were abolitionists, uh, abolitionists to be sure, and they lived in the North and South, but they were not in charge. That is not what happened with the war of Northern aggression. I think it was uh, the late Murray Rothbard who said the American Civil War, as he phrased it, or the, or the war between the states, uh, was last was the last just war fought by in the United States, and that was he said, and the, and the wrong side won. So right, yeah. I mean, he pointed out he. Rothbard had looked at arguments from John Randolph and others who had already articulated it very well, um, Heyman and, and others, what was going on, you know, how these, how free trade was the superior policy and that this mercantilist system was just favoring certain industries and dividing the nation and led to nullification ultimately, which they're scared to death of. And another thing that this this battle does is it discredits the idea of nullification because that comes from South Carolina and it comes from John Calhoun. And we're trying to use nullification uh, against the NSA right now. And it states rights that what people I know there was just a Supreme Court decision about homosexual marriage. But what people have to remember is that that was already legal in several states and the same with uh, legalizing marijuana which is still not a federal thing. The reason it's legal in Oregon and Colorado and Washington State and Washington, D.C. is because of states' rights. It's because the state can say, well, we don't agree with the federal government and we're going to make these things legal in our state. That process happened much earlier because of states' rights. If you have to wait until the federal government makes a sweeping law, you can wait for a very, very long time. And it's because of states' rights that the federal government ends up doing it. It's because certain states start breaking to break away and show, look, we legalized pot and it was, hell didn't break loose. You know, Because states can do it first, 
is what puts the pressure on the federal government to do it eventually anyway. Mm-hmm. And without states doing it first, the federal government usually won't do it. I mean, whether you agree with it or not, states can decide whether or not they're going to have this law or that law and what's constitutional. And it's a better way and it's a faster way towards progress. Uh, and it keeps them at bay. It divides the power. There's a great letter between General Lee and Lord Acton about that, where General Lee predicts, he says he's afraid that if the Union wins the war, that the course is going to be imperialism abroad and domestic despotism at home. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, Lee predicts the 20th century. <laughs> he predicted the 20th century. Robert. In 1867. <laughs> 1866 about, yeah. Amazing. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. That was great. Um, it's, it's a very complex and interesting topic. Your article is a very succinct treatment of it, and I recommend it to everybody. Because it's, yeah, the it's, articles are better. I mean, I can't memorize yeah. all those facts. Yeah. But I, mean, I, I haven't gotten into the Civil War for a long time. My brother knows it inside and out, and I know a lot from him. I have a twin. It's all about that. I'm much more into the Middle East and other things. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I understand economics, and so I could read it and listen to him and then get it. But, uh, you know, I'm not uh, a Civil War historian like Mike Scruggs or Thomas DeLorenzo or are these guys that specialize in this issue. But I just from looking around Facebook and stuff, I go, well, I seem to know a lot more than most. <laughs> well, you, because you, you uh, bother to crack a book, so that gives you a head up. Right. I've, yeah, I've read books about it, certainly. I, when I was a little kid, I mean, I heard the whole, I sided with North. I was like, okay, yeah. You know, well, same with me. I mean, out. I didn't hear any about this stuff. I said, oh, North won, where it's America, we're always good, blah, blah, blah. Rah, rah, yeah. USA, USA. That's how, you know. Pretty yeah, cheerleading for the team, but. Yeah. You know, when you, I grew up, and I think a lot of people can't. They need that crass generalization where it's just some stupid good versus evil narrative where you got to, we went to do this. And mm-hmm. No, you know, it's not. And you get the same stuff for World War One, World War Two, and all of all the conflicts. You know, we're fighting communists, we're fighting terrorists, we're civilizing savages. It's some stupid excuse for naked aggression. Yeah, it's always well. That's the excuse to go in and take you know, monopolize uh, markets, take over the world, and that's what the war is yeah. always by deception. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, thank you. Uh, it's again, it's the ancreport dot com. Yeah, ancreport. That's where you can get, see Ryan's work. Uh, you can also see his books he's written, which is I guess the most recent is the Separation of Business and State, which Separation of Business and State. I also co-authored a book called Why Peace. Why it's peace? co-authored by a number of people, but. That's over 600 pages. I highly recommend it. Uh, people have had very emotional reactions reading that. People have cried. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you hear, it's Voices from the Voiceless, that book. And I don't get any royalties for that or anything. I just contributed to it freely. Not knowing how successful it would be. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's, I mean, I had to put it down because I was like, whew. You know, you hear some of the stories. It's not as emotional as Hellstorm, but... That I mean, there was one story about Cambodia that I mean, there's just the stuff in there that just doesn't make the news. You know, the fumigation in Colombia and what's happening, like things, stories that ought to be told that aren't. We kind of focus on the big wars, the war in Iraq, obviously horrible, hundreds of thousands, possibly a million people dead from that. But there are other smaller conflicts where you know, thirty thousand people killed here, twenty thousand here that just get brushed under the rug and aren't even talked about at all. And so, why peace? The big thick book, and it's perspectives from i think 55 different countries you have different authors i was japan's at one of them and 
you get soldiers, you have victims of war, people who are participating in the war, you've got politicians, like everything. And you hear their side and what they had to go through, what veterans are dealing with today, what people in Fallujah had to deal with post-Fallujah and, and so on. And that's a good one. And then separation of business and state is basically my thesis that the government has a reverse Midas touch where everything they touch doesn't turn to gold. It turns into something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, well, listen, thank you. Um, again, ancreport.com. Read his stuff. Watch his documentaries on YouTube. And yep. you will got a even, podcast on there, too. They're provocative. They're edifying. Uh, even if you don't agree with them, he always gives you something to think about. And that's something you can't sneeze at. So thank you, Ryan. One last thing. I will be doing a AMA, Ask Me Anything, about the new film, Empire Unmasked. Well, it's Ask Me Anything, so it's anything. But I, I hope they ask about, <laughs> about the that. show, yeah. <laughs> on Reddit. Reddit. I don't have the okay. date quite yet, but it'll be on Reddit. It'll be an AMA. It's the first one I've ever done. I think it's going to be <laughs> entertaining. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I may pull some people to the woodshed if I have to, but uh, I don't mind. Um, I always engage the public. I, I don't care about being who's right. I just care about what's right, and I find that dialogue is the best way. If I'm saying something dumb, someone can call me out on it. I'll just go, okay, I see new evidence and change my mind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me. And a lot of people can't do that. And also people have a hard time saying they don't know. They don't know something. But I hope that people today learned a bit more about the Civil War. You can't just dismiss the tariff issue like it was nothing. You just can't. And you can have multiple causes. And and I could argue more about why it wasn't about slavery if, if that's the thing. But I wanted to spend the time more so explaining what happened with tariffs because I feel like that's the more omitted portion of the narrative. Well, the bigger the bigger, more destructive the war, the bigger the lies that are necessary to uh, sanctify it. So, yeah, did you say that, or is that a quoting? <laughs> I just made that up myself, and I'm sure it's been well, said it's before. True. <laughs> it's probably been said, but that that's very. I'm true. sure it's been said before. <laughs> I heard, maybe I heard it. When I was halfway asleep somewhere, but no. But yeah, it's the bigger the war, the bigger the lies. That's you know, so it's great. Yeah, goes. well, thanks for having me on. I'm glad well, that, that someone called.